Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 83. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No, they are not. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you the information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers i know most people don't like ads but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on we promise it will only take a few minutes but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com 
Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We'd just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. Then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? (laughs) Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ. And then what? Well, while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is I'm on level 393. Right on. (laughs) Yes, it sounds incredible. But if Mm -hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy in an imaginary (laughs) private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground at work or in line at the grocery store, one thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, it is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry, I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll mm-hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Hey, we got a new voicemail, by the way. I saw I saw that too. Yeah, so we'll probably add that to this one. Cool, cool, cool. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So, yeah. Who- are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Christina Shea Walters, a Native American woman who was a leader of a gang and attempted to murder one woman and then ordered the executions of two other women. The victims were chosen at random. And uh, I guess this is more like spree killing, but eh. It's true crime nonetheless, y'all. That's what you're here for, am I right? (laughs) Um, So before we get into it, how you doing? I'm okay. It's getting kind of scary here in Arizona with the coronavirus. We, sure is. Levels are spiking like crazy mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. hospitals are filling up. So it's a little scary out there and I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going in the office at all? Uh, no, I have to go into the office oh, twice, yeah. a, twice a week, but yeah. I, I'm not happy about it. Mm, yeah, I... Uh... I am going into the office and from my vantage point, it is something I look forward to every week. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Shit is, I mean, 
I, I think I've talked about this before, but our, this, this pandemic and what's going on with the um, racial unrest is going to have ramifications for generations to come, including the kids who are coming up today. My yeah. kids are, they're going back and forth between anxious and excited to play. And it's just a roller coaster of emotions. And we just have to sort of roll with it and, um, you know, let them feel their feelings. But it's, it's not only like, I anxiety inducing to adults, which for me, it is extra. I've been meditating my butt off <laughs> to try to keep it together. And um, I'm trying to teach my kids how to do the same, but they're, they're going through it just like we are. So, yeah, you know, we had a family zoom meeting today and uh, you know, my sister, Minnie was on it. And mm-hmm. she was telling a story about how she was listening to some kids playing outside her window. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were saying, get it. It's the virus. Get it. Something like that. Oh, they wow. were playing virus. And wow. uh, it was dandelions. They were uh, the seeds were blowing in the air and they were pretending it was the virus. Wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. That just made my heart drop. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. So, so gosh. Uh, yeah. Keep yeah, the kids in mind. Keep the kids, add the kids to the top of all of your prayer lists because yeah. they're going to need it um, for generations to come. Um, yeah. Also, speaking of keeping my kids busy and out of my hair, we bought one of those um, pools f- on the internet because uh, they were sold out in Arizona. F- so it's one of those 10 foot wide three foot high pools okay and there was a lot of price gouging going on on the internet i don't condone giving jeff bezos more money but amazon was the only place i could get it and yeah. normally they're like 150 dollars. this one was 250 dollars. oh my so, god but it was worth it because whoo hours go by <laughs> and they are just out there screaming they're having a blast and, yeah it is yeah Oh my God, awesome. it is amazing. Um, so uh, now we're going to get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Hello, thank you. Oh, yes. Yeah. So what's in the bag, Beth? Well, we got a an email from Lyra D who said, hello, I've just discovered your podcast and I'm loving it. Thank you for the quality content. Anyway, I thought you might be interested in a case from my childhood. I'm always banging the drum about this one because it's chilling and thrilling. Ooh, bang that <laughs> drum, bang it. <laughs> I'm a white woman who was born and grew up in the kingdom of Eswatini, South oh. Africa. Mm-hmm. And I, I apologize if I pronounced it wrong. Mm-hmm. When I was young, the whole country was in fear of a serial killer who was on the loose for ages. Mm. He was believed to be a moody murderer, harvesting bodies for use in traditional medicine. Mm. He was eventually caught, and his name is David Thabo Similan. Mm. There are a few good articles out there about him if you're interested in reading more. Love to you both. And uh, hip hop air horns to you. That's correct. Lira well D. deserved. Yeah. And thank you. And uh, we definitely put him on the list because he sounds interesting. Very much so. I Googled the name right away. Lots of articles populated. Uh, so sweet. I don't think we'll have a hard time finding information on uh, Mr. Similane. Uh, we uh, got on IG from Ona35 said, 
Y'all got me through this week and I can't thank you enough. I got too tired of telling grown ass people what they should already know. This is a black <laughs> woman, by the way. I'm tired and binge listening to you saved my sanity. And again, we say, no, girl, you saved us because doing the show is like therapy for me. I think Beth too, even yeah. though it's a lot of work. I love doing the research. I love yeah. coming together once a week and talking yep. about this shit. It brings us great joy. It does. Uh, so hip hop air horns to you, boo. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. And we got so many patrons this week. I don't know wow. what is going on, <laughs> but yeah, we got a bunch of new members in the Facebook group too. Yeah. It's it's cra- I think part of it has to do there's a there was a hashtag going around about like supporting black businesses, including oh, black creators yeah. and black podcasters. And so I think that might be where it's coming from. Could be, could be. I'm very yeah. grateful. My black ass yes, certainly is grateful. Definitely. So thank you. Uh, so to our new patrons, I didn't have time to come up with cool jingles for you. So you'll just get <laughs> hip hop air horns. Casey H. Kim. Chill 024 Kim D Coming to the stage Anna L <laughs> KQTRR8 <laughs> And Chelsea A Baby <laughs> Thank you all so much for supporting our little show that I literally am recording from my laundry room (laughs) (laughs) with cardboard boxes and pillows all around to try to help with the sound. (laughs) So I wanted to say that uh, from what uh, Ona35 said about being too tired of telling grown-ass people what they should already know, um, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that as a white ally, and I think probably all of the white listeners of our podcast would consider consider themselves allies. Yeah, and I would actually consider you guys accomplices, not just oh, allies. Oh, sweet. I like that. Yeah, go even, <laughs> yeah. go even further to do the work. Yeah. And please let us know what we can do to help. You know, shout it out, uh, post in the Facebook group. Yeah. Um, I'll, and I'll admit that before Wendy and I became friends, I had no idea how exhausting it is for Black people to have to explain things all the time to white people, especially when they're not receptive. And Ooh. Girl, thank you for saying it. Yes, I can Um, sit down now. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to do my part um, on Facebook on my my own timeline. So I have been so proud of you. You you are the only person (laughs) on my timeline. I'm unfriending a lot of stupid people. Yeah, you are the only person who's posting resources, books, um, things that are outrageous. you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, like you are really like doing the work and posting good content to help educate the masses. And I try. None of my other white friends are doing it. And I'm, I feel like they should be ashamed of themselves for not even trying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I I can't make any excuses for them. All all I can say is that maybe they don't know what to say. Sure. So I'm going to try to do more to encourage my white friends to to say more and to be more supportive. Hey, that's why you're on that short list I got. (laughs) 
Okay, so um, this is our little race discussion, um, and we don't do it every episode, but before we get into this episode, we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color, and true crime is difficult to hear about, and sometimes race and even LGBTQ issues can be too, but all of those things are just part of the world that we live in, and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about it, and we may not always say the right things, um, but we are all learning all the time, and hopefully trying to be our best sexy selves. So um, here we go. Yeah. And I also wanted to mention that last week uh, we learned something new. Like Wendy said, we don't always say the, the right things, but we try. And last week we found out that indigenous people of Australia, they do not uh, speak a person's name after they die. Mm-hmm. And here we're speaking these victims' names throughout the whole podcast, and we had no idea. Yeah. Um, and so we did change the uh, the intro so that uh, they were at least forewarned mm-hmm. that we were going to be speaking their names, and mm-hmm. th- and that's because of our fruity Jennifer in our our Facebook group. Yes, thank you, Boo. Yeah, thank you. She she uh, let us know that that was a thing. So um, yeah, we are also learning all the time. Yeah. And like one thing that I want to point out is like, I'm a black Latinx bisexual woman, but like even LGBTQ issues, I may not um, like I was talking to a a trans friend the other day and I was like, oh, okay, I see you, mister. And I was like, oh, shit, their (laughs) pronouns are they them. And I had to like apologize and stuff. But like I may not always get it right. And um, even so, you know, we have blinders when we're not a part of another group. And so we're just all doing our best. And for you, you know, maybe white people or people who are not, um, you know, black or, um, you know, not in a marginalized group who are listening to this and like, I don't even know where to start. Just first Google it. And then uh, if you're comfortable enough, knowing that you will make you may make a mistake, ask a question with a safe person um, and start a conversation. That's my recommendation. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you're too afraid to like post it in the group, you can always DM us. Um, yeah. Message and, us. And, and yeah, we some questions. Mm-hmm. And we're not, I'm, I'm not the voice of all black people or all Latinx people or all queer people, but, and, and Beth certainly isn't the voice of all white people, right. Or all women, but um, we will definitely give you some feedback based on, yeah. you know, our experience and the work that we've done in doing the show. So, right. Whew, that was a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hi, True Crime Recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by private Joe Schmo or veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country, allegedly in a diaper, to confront her romantic rival, and most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. 
You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now. And we're back. So who's our subject again today, Beth? Today we're talking about Christina Shea Walters, a Native American woman who attempted to murder one woman and ordered the executions of two other women. That's right. So now we're going to get into some stats. Um, Wendy's favorite part of all of these stories, um, because I'm a sick fuck. Uh, So Christina Shea Walter, a.k.a. Queen, by the way, I thought it was interesting. Um, So uh, white girls always want to be like princesses because that's how they saw themselves like on TV and stuff. And then BIPOC women, black indigenous people of color women always want to be like queens because yeah. those were the only images we saw. <laughs> <laughs> there was never any brown princess when I was growing up. Anyway, so Christina Shea Walter, a.k.a. Queen, is an American indigenous woman who was a leader of a local Crips gang in Fayetteville, North Carolina. She is specifically a Lumbee Indian. We'll talk about more, th- more about that later. She ordered the executions of two white women and shot one woman herself who survived. Her victims were, let's speak their names, Tracy Rose Lambert, 18, and Susan Moore, 21, and Deborah Cheeseboro, who was 40, uh, who survived the shooting attack. She had several accomplices, Francisco Paco Tirado, 18, Eric Queen, 19, John Huarbi, 21, Ion, a.k.a. Star Black, not sure of uh, her age, but possibly around 20, Tamika Douglas, who was 15, Carlos Frank, 20, Carlos Nevilles, uh, age unknown, and Daryl Tucker, who was 18. Uh, Her crimes took place all on August 17, 1998. Um, She was sentenced to death on July 6, 2000, but was taken off of death row in on 12, 12, 12. Remember when we thought that was the year it was that the world was going to end 2012 because of the Mayan calendar Uh, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And then some other stuff happened. We'll get into it. So now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Fayetteville, North Carolina, the sixth largest city in North Carolina. It is best known as the home of Fort Bragg, a military base located northwest of the city. The fort is named for a Confederate general, Braxton Bragg. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in the news lately, there's been a discussion about renaming military bases that are named after Confederate generals, of which there are 10. And of course, Trump is against this. Yeah, I've been listening to debate around um, these monuments. And at first... Um, maybe cut to, you know, Wendy five years ago, I was like, yeah, cut them all down. Like you would never have a, a Hitler statue um, right. above like a Hebrew school, you know, yeah. or next yeah. door. Like that is just so beyond just not, not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But for some reason, and by the way, all these Confederate statues and naming of places after Confederate um, generals and stuff only happened with every gain that the civil rights movement gained. Um, Oh, wow. In an effort to um, remind Black people, like, yeah, you got this, but guess what? We got that. Um, And so I think... I I can I know that there's a lot of debate around this, but one argument that I heard recently was, what if we recontextualize 
um, these things so that they are more truthful. So we don't necessarily have to change the names or take the statues down. But what if um, we um, just added more context so that these monuments were more truthful um, and showed maybe being a Confederate general wasn't a good thing because basically they were traitors and evil human (laughs) beings. Um, So anyway, it's just an argument that I heard that I wanted to interesting. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, North Carolina has the largest native American population east of the Mississippi river and the eighth largest native American population in the United States. There are the area of present day Fayetteville was inhabited by Eastern woodland tribes and indigenous peoples inhabited the area for more than 12,000 years before the European invasion. Guess what happened next? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Popular media like books, movies, and TV shows usually focus on Plains tribes and overlook the history and culture of the Eastern woodland tribes. These tribes lived in forests and their food, shelter, clothing, weapons, and tools came from the forests around them. They lived in villages near lakes or streams, and their homes were longhouses or wigwams, referred to in the West as wiki-ups, rather than teepees. Hmm. In North Carolina and nearby states, most Native Americans are members of state-recognized tribes and do not live on reservations. Many Native tribes are not recognized by the federal government. They may be recognized by the state they reside in, but not the federal government. The uh, Lumbee tribe is one of these. An 1875 amendment to the North Carolina State Constitution brought about segregated schools. Native Americans were considered, quote unquote, colored and could not attend white schools. The Native Americans of Robeson County insisted that they did not fit into either category. In 1885, the Olympia tribe, which at the time were called Croatons, established Native-only public schools. And these were not assimilation schools, but rather schools established and run by the tribe. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, In 1913, the North Carolina General Assembly officially labeled the Croatans, or Robeson County Native Americans, the Cherokee Indians of Robeson County. So they just renamed them and making an inaccurate connection to the eastern band of Cherokees who lived in the Great Smoky Mountains of western North Carolina. In the early 1950s, Reverend D.F. Lowry organized the Lumbee Brotherhood, adopting the name from a local river. In 1952, Robeson County Native Americans overwhelmingly voted to adopt the new name, and the General Assembly subsequently changed their official designation in 1953 to the Lumbees. It sucks that they had to fight for it, though, don't you know? In 1956, Congress passed the Lumbee Act, which recognized the tribe as Indian. However, the act withheld the full benefits of federal recognition from the tribe. Efforts are still underway to pass federal legislation that grants full recognition to the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. When schools were desegregated in the 60s, most of the Lumbee were not happy about it. Native Americans in North Carolina have long experienced discrimination and racism, but in their own schools, the Native American children were shielded from it. Their schools were also used to help the Lumbee retain their cultural identity. And of note, the assimilation schools were not dismantled until the 70s in the U.S. But as I said before, these were not assimilation schools. But we did talk about assimilation schools in our last episode. Yeah. 
Um, not all of the Lumbi were opposed to desegregation, though. Some believed that sending their children to a quote-unquote white school would create opportunities that may not even have been available at the Indian schools. The reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan during the 50s and 60s was mainly in opposition to the civil rights movement during this time and the integration policies that were being enacted. Lumbees also had dealings with the Ku Klux Klan, and the most famous was the incident at Hayes Pond in Maxton, North Carolina. All right, buckle up. In January (laughs) 1958, Grand Dragon James Cole... That just sounds menacing. Stupid. Grand Grand Dragon James Cole and 50 other members of the Ku Klux Klan gathered there for a rally in a cornfield. Cole organized the rally to protest the mongrelization of whites and Lumbee Indians. Um, I don't know if mongrelization needs to be defined, but... um, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a nice word. No. But before the rally even began, several hundred Lumbees chased the Klansmen from the cornfield. Woo! <laughs> and despite numerous gunshots, there was only one minor injury. And afterwards, the Lumbees went to the nearby town of Pembroke to celebrate, taking the KK banner with them. That is awesome. <laughs> Who's that got is. the victory? <laughs> and there's uh, a picture of uh, two Native American men with the KK banner wrapped around them, and they're making funny faces. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, I love that. Um, Well, I mean, if you think about it, it is just so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This idea that there's one pure race and that they deserve to somehow stomp out all of the other races for no reason other than they're pale and they get sunburned easily and they (laughs) they can't handle spicy foods. They want to be on top, I guess. I guess. Some people need to go back to Sunday school. (laughs) Yes, they do. Oh, but that's another interesting thing is um, like white Jesus to white people versus Jesus to people of color. And um, like to people of color, their Jesus is one who accepts everybody, who fights for the poor, who, um, you know, fights for the little guy, but, um, yeah, that's my Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's most people's Jesus, but these even crazy evangelicals Evangelicals. or even the KKK, um, have this idea that, um, Jesus is about more like power and, um, more, um, the focus is less on community, um, or accepting other people as Jesus would have and just um, judging insulating. People yeah, and, judging and people and, and yeah. yeah, insulating and uplifting yourself. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the Maxton riot generated massive local and national media attention. But despite an overall positive tone, the news coverage of the clash illustrated the media's ignorance of Indian history and culture in the South. What does Wendy always say? The news <laughs> is racist. Uh, <laughs> reporters used racist stereotypes and simplistic Native American character caricatures when commenting on the story, as they tend to do. They also used Plains Indian imagery and iconic iconography to describe the event. The Lumbee are one of eight state recognized Native American tribes in North Carolina, and they have a 
about 55,000 enrolled members. According to the 2000 United States Census report, 89% of the population of the town of Pembroke, North Carolina, identify as Lumbee, and 40% of Robeson County's population identify as Lumbee. Very cool. Every time you say North Carolina, I can't help but um, summon in my mind the famous rapper Petey Pablo and uh, the rap song that came out in the early 2000s, North Carolina, come on and raise up, take your shirt off, swish it around your head, spin like a helicopter, North Carolina. Do you remember that song? No, I don't. Come on. Oh, man, that really gets gets the club going. Um uh, I digress. That's a funny song. Oh, you got to listen to it. Man, it'll really like uh, get you pumped up, get you yeah, ready for that workout. Yeah, kind of funny. North Carolina. Okay. So Lumbi communities are linked together by their extensive kinship ties, church affiliations, their sense of themselves as Indians, and their control of their educational system. Remember, we were talking about their schools, all of which serve as a mechanism for defining tribal membership and maintaining tribal boundaries. Communities are basically self-governing. Recently in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Gina Hawkins became the first Black female police chief. She is part of the Presidential Commission on Law Enforcement in the U.S., and she herself marched and had her officers march with the protesters in recent Black Lives Matter protests. By the way, some of these police departments are really getting this crucial moment in time very wrong. Very wrong. (laughs) Uh, In Atlanta, there was a Black guy who was shot yeah, he was asleep in that. the drive-thru and then ran away from the police for obvious reasons. I don't know, because they kill us. And um, they shot him in the back. And yeah. then uh, the police chief in Atlanta stepped down. But Atlanta has a black female mayor who's always like, you know, with the people. So I I am not sure what her explanation is on this so far. But yeah, he was at a Wendy's and there was a crowd that gathered outside and they burned the Wendy's down. It was crazy. There was a, a video of a guy going into the store and he lit off some fireworks inside the Wendy's and, and burned it to the ground. Oh, they did it in response. They didn't do it while he was asleep oh, in the no. drive-thru. No, 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 no. Oh. In response. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Still. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of shit going down, and um, people are angry. Yeah. Um. So we did an episode a few um episodes back about Christopher Dorner. Remember the right. LAPD officer yes. who yes. was pissed about the racism in the LAPD and was like, you know what? I tried to go through the proper channels, but fuck it, you guys. Now, now I've had it and I am going to kill every LAPD officer I can. Right. And um, he, so when they came to apprehend him, they sent like 400 police officers to track him down yeah. when he was in the woods in Big Bear. And yeah. um, uh, Dave Chappelle brought this up in his latest um, comedy special that police shouldn't be surprised when when one cop is killed hundreds of cops come to apprehend that suspect. So when thousands, even millions of protesters are coming to seek an answer for the death of George Floyd and everybody else who's been killed at the hands of the police, they shouldn't be surprised. Right. Um, They're doing the same thing. They have the same reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So now we're going to get into Christina Shea Walter's early life. So 
Um, unfortunately, we did not know much about Christina Welter's early life. What we do know is that she was born on July 15th, 1978, and that she, so she's a cancer, and she is Lumbi and possibly also of Cherokee descent, although that may be confusion regarding the tribal name changes that was as a result of U.S. fuckery. Uh, She says that she was emotionally, physically, and sexually abused as a child. Um, She has also said that once when a boyfriend attempted to take her shirt off, she cut him with a box cutter. Christina fell into gang life when she met other youths who had similar upbringings, and she was looking for a family and acceptance and a means to survive. The gang members were Crips, but of varying subgroups called Sets, and Christina's nickname was Queen. As an adult, when Christina moved in into her own trailer, it became a meeting place for the gang, and she became its de facto leader. She was a woman, and many of the gang members were male. This is pretty unusual. She then found herself in a position of having to regular, regularly assert her dominance as a leader over the gang members who tried to challenge her. A teardrop tattoo in gang culture can mean many things, depending on its shape and location. In West Coast gangs, of which the Crips are one of, a closed or colored-in teardrop under the eye is supposedly an indicator that the person has killed someone, although gangs can and do attach their own meanings to the tattoo. In any case, Christina reportedly wanted to kill someone to earn this tattoo in order to secure her position. By the way, I've always been envious of people who have face tattoos. Like you either have no choice, like you have to either be a a rapper or um, some sort of tattoo model or have to have like a lot of money in the bank. Otherwise, like how how are you going to get a job? And so I've always thought like when I'm wealthy enough someday or (laughs) retired and have nothing else to lose that I will get those face tattoos and a full sleeve just as like an, an F you to the patriarchy. Um, every, everybody just to say, I don't need you anymore. I don't have to live by your rules. When I see people with face tattoos, I think they're just like thinking, I don't give a fuck about anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is admirable. I mean, if you ask me, I mean, the only thing keeping me from having my face tattooed is the fact that I have an employer. Yeah. No, I don't think I would get my face tattooed. That's not something that interests me. You don't want Fruit Loops on your forehead? <laughs> no. <laughs> I have it tattooed somewhere else. <laughs> we can get matching ones, like on our like matching you know, tramp stamps. In the 90s, I wanted a tramp stamp so bad, but I didn't know it was a tramp stamp. I just wanted a lower back tattoo, you know? Oh, interesting. <laughs> and then I heard people calling it tramp stamps, and I was like, oh, I guess I don't want one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got my tramp stamp my like like on my 18th birthday. Oh wow. Um, Oh, yeah, that's right. You told me I didn't know it was a tramp stamp, but (laughs) you told me you got a tattoo on your 18th birthday. Yeah, mostly just to piss off my dad, but I'd always (laughs) wanted one. And uh, I think that you would be hard pressed to find a girl from age 30 to 40 who doesn't have a tramp stamp. (laughs) If you're out there, come find me.
now we're going to get into the timeline. So on Sunday, August 16th, 1998, Christina Walters, who was 20, and eight of her gang members gathered at the at her trailer in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and made plans to steal a car. The gang members included Paco Tirado, who was 18, Eric Queen, 19, John Huarbe, 21, Ion Star Black, who was maybe 20, Tamika Douglas, who was 15, Carlos Frank, 21, Carlos Nevilles, and Daryl Tucker, who was 18. The plan was to steal a car, drive it into the window of a pawn shop, and then steal some stuff from the pawn shop. Mm. Sounds like a crazy plan. Very <laughs> much so. Before they did this, several gang members, including Walters, went to a local Walmart to buy bullets. And while they were there, they also stole some toiletry items and some clothing. They then went back to Walter's trailer where Torado painted the tips of the bullets blue with fingernail polish that Walter's had. Blue is the color identified with the Crips gang. Mm. Uh, yes. And uh, Snoop Dogg is a, uh, or uh, I guess identified with the Crips. And, oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And they do a dance called the Crip Walk um, hmm. where they basically spell out different symbols with their feet in a very rhythmic fashion. Um, it's really cool. Um, huh. And then um, I think it got kind of commercialized um, with the advent of rap videos, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Yeah. And then everybody, everybody believed they everybody could walk, including myself. <laughs> uh so soon afterwards, Walters and a deaf black male, name unknown, uh, who was not a part of the gang, drove Douglas, Black, and Nevilles to a neighborhood location and dropped them off with instructions to find a victim, to steal the victim's car, to put the victim into the trunk of the car, and then return to Walters' trailer. Walters gave Nevilles a gun, and then she and the deaf black male drove away, leaving Douglas, Black, and Nevilles there. The three gang members walked around looking for someone to rob when around 1230 a.m. on Monday, August 17th, they spotted Deborah Cheeseboro, 40, a black woman, a wife and a mother of two. She was leaving a Bojangles restaurant where she was the manager. By the way, that list of go to a neighborhood, drop them off, steal a car, put them in the trunk, get the car, return to Walter. Right. It's like a gang scavenger hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst scavenger hunt the ever. Worst scavenger hunt ever. <laughs> um, so Douglas Black and Nevilles abducted Deborah at gunpoint and drove around in her car with her in the back seat before stopping to put her in the trunk, and at the same time robbing her of jewelry and money. They returned to Walter's trailer where the gang gathered around the car. It was at this point that the gang became aware of Walter's intention to kill someone while they were discussing what to do with Deborah. Prior to this, the rest of the gang believed that the mission was about robbing and stealing, but Walter's brought it to the next level. I wonder too, I didn't see anything in the sources or in the, uh, in the story about like what they may have been under the influence of. Oh, yeah, of... I didn't see anything about drugs at all or alcohol. Yeah. Nothing. But I find yeah. it hard to believe that they would have pursued this gang scavenger hunt completely sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't see anything in any of the sources about mm -hmm. alcohol or drugs. Yeah, uh, same Z's. Uh, with Deborah still in the trunk, Walters, Douglas, 
Frank and Queen got into Deborah's car and drove her to Smith Lake, a location at the Fort Bragg military base. There, Deborah was let out of the trunk and Walters told her to get down on one knee. Eon Black later recalled, I remember her saying stuff like, don't hurt me and I've got two kids. She said, take my money, you've already got my car. Walters attempted to fire the gun at Deborah, but it jammed. Walters said, hold up and tried to unjam the gun. Walters then raised the gun again, this time at the level of Deborah's waist, and fired the bullet into Deborah's right side. After the shot knocked Deborah down onto her stomach, Walters shot her seven more times. Uh, the final shot went through Deborah's glasses, grazed her eyelid, and hit her thumb. Deborah pretended to be dead. After the gang members left, Deborah dragged herself up to the street. She later testified that she heard her deceased mother's voice comforting her and telling her that it wasn't my time yet. Mm. Robert McClenahan, a passing motorist, found Cheeseboro at about 2 p.m. on the 17th. So she was laying out there that whole time. Oh, my God. He said he saw what he thought was a pile of clothes on the side of the road. Then he saw Deborah's head lift up and he realized it was a person and he got he got help. Uh, after arriving at the scene, Army medic Jesse Anol said Cheeseboro was covered in ants. He noticed at least seven entry wounds. Medics transported Cheeseboro to Womack Army Hospital. And I, I guess it was because they were on the Army base. Because mm-hmm. when I first read that part about the Army medic, I'm like, Army medic? What? what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, which seems really weird that they took her to uh, the Army base to kill her. That is strange, too. I mean, I thought you needed special, like, clearance to get onto those things. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been on the outskirts. Okay. I don't know. Maybe they didn't even know they were on the army base. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, after the gang left Deborah for dead, they returned to Walter's trailer where they decided that they needed a second car for some Mm. reason. Hmm, okay. Tucker, Black, Queen, and Walters rode around in Deborah's car, finally zeroing in on a car driven by Susan Moore, 21, and Tracy Lambert, 18, was a passenger. The two women were dancers at a nightclub and were heading home from work at about 2 a.m. The gang pulled up next to the car and began yelling and waving guns. Susan tried to get away but made a wrong turn and ended up trapped at the end of a dead-end road. Oh, my God. That's that's like... Nightmare. Nightmare. That's what, that's yeah. what they write in movie scripts. Uh, Walters handed a gun to Tucker, telling him to go do what you got to do. Walters, Frank, and Queen then drove away in Deborah's car after Queen directed Black, Tucker, and Douglas to be at Walters' trailer in 45 minutes. Tucker and Douglas forced Moore and Lambert into the trunk at gunpoint, and then Black, Tucker, and Douglas returned to Walters' trailer with the women in the trunk. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. 
that's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. When the gang was all back at Walter's trailer, they surrounded the car and discussed who would kill the women. Then the entire gang, half in Deborah's car and half in Moore's car, drove to a location in Linden where the women were forced out of the trunk. Walters directed her gang members to kill the women. Eon Black later testified that they were crying and kept asking, what are you all going to do with us? But the gang had just witnessed Walters shoot Deborah Cheeseboro and knew that to refuse was suicide. Tracy Lambert kept saying, please don't hurt us. She was walking and uh, had her hands over her head. And I remember her saying, oh, God, Susan, we're going to die. I don't want to die. Eric Queen told Tracy to shut up and then shot her in the head. At the same time, Paco Torado was holding Susan Moore with a knife to her throat. She begged him not to slit her throat and to shoot her instead, which he did. Mm. The gang members once again returned to Walter's trailer. After talking for a while, the group split up with instructions to return by 3.30 p.m. So that's the timeline. Now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. When Eon Black returned home after the murders and attempted murder, she was terrified. She knew that at least a couple of the people in the gang were aware that she had not wanted to be there when the crimes occurred. 
Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow! Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today or in the future, never or are undecided, it's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. And then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? <laughs> Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ, and then what? Well, <laughs> while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We, <laughs> we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is, I'm on level 393. Right on. <laughs> yes, it sounds incredible. But if mm-hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy, in an imaginary <laughs> private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground at work or in line at the grocery store. One thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, It is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry. I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll Mm -hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Around dawn, Frank called Walters with the news that some bodies had been found. When the gang met up at Walters' trailer, Black was not there. She had never witnessed a murder before and felt, quote-unquote, like they might try to do something to her. When some of the gang members came looking for her, Black's roommate told them that Black had gone to her mother's house, which was a lie. Seven members of the gang, including Walters, took the stolen cars and fled to Myrtle Beach using Susan Moore's cell phone to place calls to family and friends. 
And that does not seem very smart. Not a not a wise decision. Um, no. Neville's and Black did not go with the rest of the gang to Myrtle Beach. Later that evening, Black called 911 and told the operator that she had, quote, seen some people get shot, end quote. And she gave descriptions of the people who were involved. On Tuesday, August 18th, Huarbe and Tucker were apprehended in Deborah's car by Myrtle Beach police officers. And on Wednesday, August 19th, Walters, Frank, Douglas, Queen, and Toronto were apprehended and arrested at the Bonvia Motel in Myrtle Beach in a room that had been rented by Walters. So that took no time at all. Yeah. Um, detectives found gang paraphernalia, Deborah Cheese Rose purse, and the license plates from the two stolen cars in Walters' mobile home. The cars with stolen dealer tags were found in Myrtle Beach. The suspects were wearing gang-related blue bandanas, and Eon Black turned herself into authorities. Cumberland County Sheriff Earl Butler said that there have been many violent incidents in the county that have consisted of attacks between gang members, but during his career, he had never heard of a gang member singling out people at random in this way. Mm. Thank goodness they were caught quickly. Can you imagine how terrifying this would have been if they were just on the loose? Yeah. I mean, it's already terrifying, but... um, Yeah. You know, uh, the media. Yeah, very much so. The media covered Susan Moore and Tracy Lambert's murders extensively. Remember, these are two white ladies. They were pretty young, blonde, again, white women. Deborah Cheeseborough was a middle aged black woman and her attempted murder did not get much coverage. Wonder why? Curious. Mm. Many people did not even know that a black woman had been targeted and they were quick to claim this as a hate crime against white people. Oh, boy. The media also reported extensively that this was a crime related to a gang initiation, but it was not. Boy, the media sure gets it wrong a lot. Yeah, they do. Um. (laughs) (laughs) When you start doing research for these kinds of stories, Mm -hmm. um, you read a lot of articles and uh, you have to like compare and look at court records and Mm -hmm. All kinds of stuff. Um, and, and we may get a, get the details wrong sometimes, but I do the best I can to try to cross-reference. But a lot of times, yeah, the media gets it wrong. Yeah, no. And Beth is like so thorough. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I'll find an article. Sounds about right. <laughs> put, it, put it in the doc. <laughs> uh, I'm just, uh, I can't help it. I know. <laughs> I'm I know like OCD can. about it. <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, everybody wants to be first to report. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not so careful about the details. Yeah. And there's less, um, uh, desire to be correct and accurate. Everybody. Yeah. And and it seems like sometimes, uh, an article will come out and say something and then all the other articles will say almost the exact same thing Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily correct. So, yeah. 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 Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. So Francisco Paco Tirado and Eric Queen were tried first. Ion Black, who was also charged in the murders, testified in their trial after making a deal with the state in which she would not face the death penalty and would possibly have her murder charge reduced to second-degree murder in exchange for her testimony. Ion Black told jurors how the victims were picked at random to be kidnapped and killed. Both Tirado and Queen were found guilty and sentenced to death. Walters was tried next and Deborah Cheeseboro testified at her trial. The jury found her guilty on all charges. When the jury read their verdict, Walters cried uncontrollably. 
After she was led from the courtroom, her grandmother, Judy Walters, began hyperventilating and screaming. Then she said she was having a heart attack. 911 was called and she was taking from the courtroom on a stretcher. And I, I feel really bad for Judy Walters. Yeah, I mean, this, this, um, we'll get into it on our takeaways, but this crime not only affected the victims and their families, but um, the fact that these, um, this gang, um, they have family members too. So yeah, they did lots these, of people affected. Yeah, by this. a lot of people uh, affected by this. So following a capital sentencing proceeding, the jury recommended a sentence of death for each of the murders, and the trial court entered judgments accordingly. The trial the trial court also sentenced Walters to consecutive terms of imprisonment for each of the nine other felony convictions. In 2009, North Carolina passed the Racial Justice Act. The Racial Justice Act allowed death row inmates to present evidence that race was a significant factor in the capital sentencing process. The minority population in North Carolina had reached 34%, according to the nonprofit Center for Death Penalty Litigation. But of the 142 prisoners on death row, nearly half were convicted by juries with little or no minority representation. Mm, well, a 1986 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Batson v. Kentucky, uh, forbid prosecutors from rejecting jurors on the basis of race alone. But researchers at Michigan State University found in a 2012 study of North Carolina death penalty trials that black jurors are two and a half times more likely to be struck. I am dying to be on a jury, but guess why I'm not? Because yeah. I'm black. <laughs> anyway. Only four people had sentences reduced under the act. Tillman Golfin, Marcus Robinson, Quintel Augustine, and Christina Walters. All of them had been convicted of murder in Cumberland County. While potential black jurors were purportedly dismissed for reasons such as reservations about the death penalty, criminal background, hardship, or employment, White jurors with similar similar characteristics were left on jury panels. Um, two of the three defendants were black, and both were tried by overwhelmingly white juries. In the case of Quintel Augustine, who is black, every member of the jury that handed down the death penalty to him was white. Court filings argue that Cumberland County prosecutors improperly used race as a primary factor in choosing Augustine's jurors. In one case, a potential juror was described in handwritten notes as a quote-unquote black wino and then rejected. Notes for a white juror who was accepted read, quote, drinks, country boy, okay. Oh, my fucking God. Uh, that's yeah. a Batson violation. Yep. Um, during Walters' trial, prosecutors rejected 10 out of 14 qualified black jurors and four of 27 whites. Uh, one black woman was struck because her brother had been convicted of an unrelated gun charge. The woman told prosecutors that she and her brother were not close and his criminal record would not affect her jury service. At the same time, a non-black juror was chosen despite having a brother jailed on a murder charge and writing him regular letters. Well, that doesn't seem right. Come again? <laughs> <laughs> 
Evidence was presented to show that the prosecutor who picked the jury in Walter's case had a history and practice of excluding black people from jury service in capital cases and that the prosecutor had been trained to strike black people and evade the guidelines of Batson v. Kentucky and evidence of a decades long culture of race discrimination in the office, which prosecuted Walters. I guess it's things that um, we all knew were there. But right. when it's when it's um, laid out, laid you. out for yeah. you, yeah. Um, I just like, watched what? today. Yeah, <laughs> I just watched Just Mercy about um, Brian Stevenson. And oh yeah, I have that the, on my uh, watch list. Yep, it's it's pretty good uh, about the the Equal Justice Initiative, and this is his life's work is getting people off of death row, um, and then pe- getting people's wrong um, convictions overturned. Reversed, yeah. Um, anyway, evidence uncovered in the RJA cases showed that racial bias in North Carolina's death penalty is systematic, not the work of a few isolated bad actors. It's not just a few bad apples. The whole system the whole is thing. run. The whole barrel <laughs> is run. Uh, this evidence included derogatory and demeaning questioning of black jurors, including asking if a juror could read, discriminatory handwritten prosecutor notes about prospective jurors, and a prosecutor who referred to a black defendant as a big black boy. Oh, my God. Lord have mercy. Then there was the case of a black defendant whose trial was compromised when his family was barred from sitting near the front of the courtroom by using crime scene tape across the chairs behind the defendant, making it look as if he were a danger to the people behind him. Oh, my God. It really is a shit show. Yeah. Um, The judge reviewed an exhaustive study of North Carolina prosecutors' strikes and acceptances of more than 7,400 jurors in 173 North Carolina capital murder trials between 1990 and 2000 and found a wealth of evidence showing the persistent pervasive and distorting role of race in jury selection throughout North Carolina. And by the way, people always talk about, oh, it's the justice system. It's the only system we have. But the system was designed this way to um, literally imprison, um, stifle poor black and brown communities and protect white affluent people and their property. And that's it. Yeah. The judge wrote that prosecutors struck black jurors at more than twice the rate of all other jurors with remarkable consistency in strike rates in every county and across the entire period of time studied. Race, he said, was a materially, practically, and statistically significant factor in decisions to exercise peremptory challenges during jury selection by prosecutors when seeking to impose death sentences in capital cases. And he concluded that the strikes were intentionally undertaken on the basis of race. Yeah, but you tell a prosecutor that, and they're like, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah. And again, we've talked about this before. It's really hard for white people sometimes to to see their whiteness, especially mm-hmm. when they're a prosecutor trying to weaponize it. Um, <laughs> anyway, but the Republican-led legislature repealed the RJA in 2013, and Governor Pat McCrory, a Republican, signed the repeal into law. And in December 2015, the North Carolina Supreme Court vacated the judge's ruling, sending the four defendants back to death row, including Walters. In March 2018, the state Supreme Court announced that it would hear RJA appeals from the four prisoners, as well as from two other prisoners whose RJA claim had also been filed but not heard. 
And on June 5th, 2020, so just, you know, a week ago, what, 10 days ago. Yeah. yeah. The North Carolina Supreme Court ruled the repeal was unconstitutional, mm. restoring the full protections of the Racial Justice Act for people who filed claims before the law was repealed in 2013. So this is new. new this news. is very new news. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Uh, yeah. Just the what is it? Justice is slow, but uh, I guess it moves eventually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the ruling ensures that none of the individuals who had filed claims can be executed without the opportunity to prove the role of racial bias in their cases. Over 100 death row inmates now have the opportunity to prove racism affected their sentences because they had filed a claim under the state's Racial Justice Act or RJA before it was repealed in 2013. So now we're going to get into where are they now, at least what we know. Uh, so Christina Shea Queen Walters was convicted and sentenced to death. Eric Queen was convicted, sentenced to death, and then committed suicide in prison in 2007. Francisco Paco Tirado, convicted and sentenced to death. John Huarbe, convicted and sentenced to 29 years in prison and project projected to get released on January. January 10th, 2023. Eon Star Black pled guilty, sentenced to at least four years and 10 months in prison. Uh, Tamika Douglas. We didn't touch on this, but Tamika Douglas was 15 when oh, this happened. Right. So, yeah, they were yeah. all really, really young. Yeah. Um, but I think she was the youngest. She was the youngest. Yeah. Pled guilty and um, she was sentenced to two consecutive uh, life sentences without parole. But just given her age, I can't believe that. I, I, yeah, that doesn't seem right. Yeah. Um, and she didn't kill anybody. She was exactly, there. Yeah. She didn't kill anybody. So that, uh, that seems like over overkill. But she, overboard, was, she yeah. was black, right? So. Right. Um, but Carlos Frank was convicted and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without parole. Carlos Nevels was convicted and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without parole. And David or Daryl Tucker was convicted and convicted and sentenced to 45 years in prison. So there you go. After her attempted murder, Deborah Cheeseboro was in the Womack Army Hospital for a month. Mm. And then she spent another month in a rehabilitation center. She still has two bullets lodged in her body. And I believe she is still married to her husband, Michael, and that they have been married for some 40 years now and wow. that they're grandparents. Well, that's a silver lining. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to get into what we think made uh, her snap and also our takeaways. So hit it, Beth. <laughs> so uh, this is another case where we don't know enough about the perpetrator's early life. But we know that some people are at greater risk of becoming offenders because of the circumstances into which they are born. Um, these people are not bad seeds who commit crimes because it's, as Wendy says, super fun. <laughs> <laughs> they were once children, most of them brought up in less than ideal circumstances and have problems related to that. And I'm guessing this is the root of Christina Walters crimes. She joined a gang for family and acceptance, and once she became a leader, she enjoyed the status and power that came with it. And since she's female, she needed to do something wild to maintain her status and murder fit the bill. Mm. And I just wanted to say um, with all this stuff about uh, defunding the police and whatnot, um, 
As a nation, we have a history of being fixated on punishment rather than on preventing crime and rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. particularly for low-level crimes or for like the 15-year-old Tamika Douglas. Mm -hmm. Um, We just threw her away. Mm -hmm. Um, And what if we could prevent crimes before they have a chance to happen? What, Mm -hmm. uh, What if, instead of throwing money at the police, we use some of that money to support the people and families who are at greater risk? Mm -hmm. What if, as a nation, we focus on that instead of waiting around for people to commit crimes, throwing their lives away like garbage, because we're only interested in punishing people? Yeah. And the more I read these stories and research these stories, it all comes back to the same thing. Mm-hmm. These kids were failed. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's not a surprise that they became criminals. Yeah. And uh, Matt, I guess it costs less money to send um, a juvenile to college than it does to send them uh to uh, the incarcerate incarceral yeah. system, yeah. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, let's have some college instead. Let's have some college, <laughs> yeah. But then, but then that leads to an educated population capable of uh, uh, enacting change in a society, and perhaps for those people at the top, the Mitch McConnells of the world, they don't yeah, want. They don't like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it it sort of protects the status quo to continue to fail keep, youth keep like these this. people down yeah. yeah and um have them end up in the you know prison system w- which makes a lot of people a lot of money um yeah. and these prisons in these rural communities employ a lot of people so it's just like this um vicious cycle that the people who are being grind put through this meat grinder can't can't win have you ever well, let's seen put a, picture- a stop to this yeah let's do it um <laughs> by the way uh i think i've said this before one of my favorite hashtags is uh traumatic injuries on instagram oh yeah 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 <laughs> the same this, i keep seeing the same photo probably in my feed of some guy's hand stuck in a meat grinder oh my god it's very gross but i love it oh yeah, I don't, I don't get it, but, but I still you love you. You don't want me to send it. I, I've been, I've been taking screenshots yeah, no. and sending them to my brothers, nope. and they get don't so send it to mad. Me. Okay, I will. <laughs> uh, so, I too wish I knew more about Christina Walters' upbringing, but I agree. People, again, don't just join gangs because it's so fun. I'm basically reiterating everything Beth said. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, uh, reiterate because I agree with everything you said. These kids were just um, at a disadvantage and did what they could to survive. They all are also kids. They were immature as yeah. all hell, um, yeah. incapable of making um, sound decisions. Um, at the same time, um, this is you know true for other groups who are looking for validation, acceptance, um, and community, um, and. Groups like the Tea Party and alt-right, we don't agree with them, but they're obviously congregating because they want community and validation, right? Right. Um, So I think we have to look at the condition that, as Beth said, made these gangs necessary. Um, And we talked about defunding the police, but I have the same questions that Beth does. Imagine if we took money away from the police and gave it to teachers and education and all these other places that are underserved so that our communities are stronger and need less. Um, yeah, we, so we don't need drive. the police as much. Exactly. Um, and indigenous communities, don't fact check me on this, but 
I believe might be even more marginalized and underserved than other BIPOC communities. I think um, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine if the U.S. answered for all of its fuckery. Um, I do not condone any of the crimes. Um, I don't think anyone would, uh, should take another's person's life, including the state. Um, But it's just a sad case because there were so many young people's lives cut short. Um, The victims, their families, including Deborah Chesbrough and um, her two kids, you know, like everybody left in the wake of this case, their lives are forever changed. So, yeah, yeah. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Yeah. So this is, these are tips that we've given before. So I'm going to just um, rattle off some real quick ones. And then if I um, can go back into uh, some old info and put the names of some of these safety apps, I will. But I did want to get into a debate with you about the last tip that I didn't put in the doc. So here we go. Deborah Cheese, get ready, Beth. Deborah okay, okay. Bro got off work late alone, and Susan Moore and Tracy Lambert got off work together and they buddied up. And you would think that would keep them safe, but they were still victims. So if you work late, um, which I have done before, text mm-hmm. or call the people so they know when you are leaving and know when to expect you home. Um, if you can get escorted to your car, take advantage of that. Um, download a safety app to your phone, which will send it. Can, there are apps that can send your location to um, loved ones or people in your circle. There's also safety apps that um, will immediately connect you to law enforcement or apps that will make a loud noise in the event that you are in a place that um, you are unsafe. Um, also, carry mace, pepper spray, pepper spray, and uh, or a knife. And I started to type this out in the doc, and I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. But I wonder. If you are a single woman and you live alone and you work late, if it's worth it to get a gun, like get one safely, do all the classes, get the permits and carry one on you to keep you safe. I wanted to know your thoughts. Me? Yeah. I would not get a gun uh, Mm -hmm. just because I don't like them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I don't feel safe having one. Mm -hmm. I'd always be afraid that uh, the person would get it away from me and use it on me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am not, you know, against other people doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just a tip that I just sort of was thinking like I am I am afraid of guns personally and I think yeah. there's so many guns out there already in the wrong hands but if um 
I guess if if that is something that would make you feel safer and you are in a position where you are on your own in the evening. But definitely, if you do get a gun, uh, take classes, learn mm-hmm. how to use it, get mm-hmm. comfortable with it, uh, take it to a shooting range, uh, spend a lot of time with it so you're, you feel comfortable and th- really think about it if you think you would be able to shoot somebody, because yeah. that's the other thing. The other reason why I don't feel comfortable with is a gun is I don't know if yeah. I'd be able to shoot somebody. And so I might hesitate and they could overpower me and take the gun from me. So I just don't think it's a good option for me. But um, if somebody else feels comfortable, like they've grown up with guns, they know all about guns, or they're willing to put in the time to Mm -hmm. get comfortable with a gun, then it might be a good option. Yeah. And it's never been a tip that we suggested in the past. I just felt like I felt like it needed to be worth it to be mentioned. Um, yeah. That's all. I'm not it's saying something to think about. Yeah. Um, my dad was a gun owner and he always said, don't have a gun if you're not like in your mind willing to kill somebody. Yes. Uh, yes. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content of people of color, a by people of color or any true crime goodies. So I don't have a true crime goodie, but I just wanted to say I totally swapped out um, oh, my like, other one. You did yeah, have one. <laughs> I did, um, but I swapped it just because in light of our episode that involved a Native American woman, I wanted to shout out uh, a couple Netflix picks um, by and about um, indigenous people. Um, the body remembers when the world broke open. It's on Netflix and it's about two indigenous women, their relationship to each other, love, motherhood, and status, um, are themes of the movie. And then, um, Marata, how mom decolonized the screen. And it's, uh, by a New Zealand filmed archivist. Uh, his name is Hepari Mita, and it traces his, the cinematic legacy of his mother, a trailblazing Maori filmmaker named Marata Mita. And wow, that sounds um, really interesting. It is, it is really, really interesting. And um, the themes that come up in this one are about family, and she's she literally is like this woman of color making all these independent films and coming up against all these barriers. And she's like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to go forward. Just going to do it." Yeah, and then the race. Racism in New Zealand is um, just as bad as anywhere else. Oh, wow. Uh, and I, di- I didn't realize that before. I didn't either. Yeah. Um, so anyway, really, really good um, uh, documentaries about um, indigenous people. Cool. So mine is uh, something lighter. Um my sister Minnie has been trying to get me to watch Brooklyn Nine Nine for a while now, and uh, they probably don't need my shout out. It's a popular <laughs> show, but yeah. I'm doing it anyway because comedies have been the only thing getting me through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, at first, uh, before I actually started watching it, um, I tried to watch the first episode several times, okay. but couldn't get past it because I hated the Andy Samberg character. Uh-oh. And uh, Minnie kept telling me, it gets better. Keep mm-hmm. watching. Mm-hmm. And then we had our Fruit Loops patron Zoom meeting and uh, several other fruities chimed in, including our fruity Rondica. Mm-hmm. And uh, I finally decided to push through the first season. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I did. Yeah, yeah. you guys were right. I was wrong. <laughs> the show's <laughs> hilarious and it has a lot of great POC characters. Yeah, and it does a really good job of 
um, touching really um, difficult subjects, including sexism in the workplace, race and and race and police, um, all kinds of really, really um, uh, good themes in the show. And it's and so it's funny. funny. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's on Hulu. So if uh, anybody else wants to watch it, it's on Hulu. Great recommendations, Beth. Much appreciated. Uh, so where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean page patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Now, listen up close. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. It's criminal.